have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ without knowing his word. However, you can sort of read the Bible and, and know the Bible, but not really know who God is. So we have to put both of those together. So God is the grand subject of the entire Bible. God is the beginning, the source, the initiator, the author, and the origin of all things. We do not believe, we do not believe that the universe came to being just by chance. We don't believe that we have evolved. We don't believe that. We believe in the authenticity of the word of God and that we serve a God who is the creator. Amen? Genesis 1.1, very, very first scripture of the Bible, introduces us by saying, in the beginning, God. So we know God is in the very beginning. God is the established foundation of the Bible. So we have to understand that. Second thing is, we understand that God is a spirit. We find that very early on in Scripture. The very first thing we find, Genesis 1-1, it's on the screen for there, in the beginning, God. So we see God introduced from the very beginning. But the second thing we find, verse number 2, if you could scroll down there for me, it says, and the earth without form and void, and darkness fell upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit, everybody say Spirit, the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the water. Something to note in Scripture as you read Scripture. You will find that the word Spirit is used often. However, you will also find that the word Spirit will begin with a capital S, and you also find that it will begin with a lowercase s. Anytime you see a capital S, Spirit, that is referring to God's Spirit. So if you ever see the word Spirit, and one looks small, one looks big, you're like, is this, what, why is this in here? What are the two things? Anytime you see the word Spirit capitalized, it is referring to the Spirit of God. John 4, 24 says this, God is a Spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Notice this, if you would put that on the screen for me, John 4.24. If you notice this here in John 4.24, it is an example of what I just said. God is a spirit, big S. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. What's that spirit? Little s. That's dealing with me. So just something to understand as you begin to discover what the Bible says and you begin to study the Bible. The dictionary defines a spirit as a supernatural being, usually invisible to human beings, but having the power to become visible at will. To distinguish God's spirit from other spirits, the word of God refers to him to be the Holy Spirit. We find that in Psalms 51, and it's quite an interesting study, not for today, to sort of come into where the, the origin of the term Holy Spirit. It goes all the way back to the very beginning of Scripture. So first thing first, we understand God is a spirit. The thing, second thing we real about, realize about God is, God is infinite. Psalms 90 says this, Before the mountains were brought forth, or even, or even you had formed the earth and the world, even, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Man dwells in matter, space, and time. God does not. God is not limited. Can I say this? God is not limited to space and time. Why is that the case? Because if he was limited by space and time, therefore space and time would be superior to God. There is sort of an argument that some will bring to you that says that God uh, dwells in time but he has knowledge of the future and knowledge of the past and and that would make god superior to time but god is bigger than anything really time is sort of what man has created man created the idea of time so that we can judge and do things according to seasons and scheduling and that. But God, when he put notice in Genesis, if you read through Genesis, and we'll read through some of it, there's never where, where it says, and God on the sixth day created a clock. God did not create time because God is superior to time. So we understand that God is a spirit. God is infinite. The third thing we understand about God is very simple. We already made it, but it's something that has to be said, especially in the climate of our current day. 
And that is, God is the creator of the world. God is the creator. This goes into a little bit later, we'll discuss this, and even last week, this sort of goes into a little bit of the clash that we find in our modern world. It's always sort of been there. I can't say it's a modern thing, because if you study history, you'll find that it's always been the case. And that is the clash that takes place between God and science. And sort of this clash that happens between faith and science. And we walk by faith. We don't walk by sight. But neither are we ignorant. We're not ignorant. I don't believe in just following blindly and just sort of being led like sheep to the slaughter. I do believe that there are things about God that we can understand that's just simply not labeled under the guides of, well, you just have to believe it. I don't believe that. But creation is important because creation reveals and gives God the glory but also, creation is also God's designed, expressed. How do we know that? Well, first of all, Psalms 19 verse 1 says this. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has not gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. So, we understand these attributes, and we could get into a little bit more about all these things, but let's kind of get into some meat here, and that is simply this. What does creation teach us about God? I personally believe that the creation story in the book of Genesis was not given to us to be a scientific explanation of the existence of the world and how it was formed. And I said last week, the reason why I say that is because when that book was penned by Moses thousands of years ago, if it was a scientific book meant to explain the creation of the world scientifically, then the question you have to ask yourself is, what science was it trying to explain? And what knowledge of science was it trying to explain? It would be very arrogant of us from a 21st century uh, mindset to say, well, it was explaining our viewpoint of the world. Well, that's a little arrogant for us living in our modern world. What about science of several hundred years ago? What about science of 500 years ago? What about science of a thousand years ago? So more importantly, creation is given to us because it teaches us things about God. And we'll go through some of these things that are important. God created the world very easily uh, if you know anything about scripture, you've heard this, but we, we believe that God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh day. Let's go through some of these things. Let's look at what God did, but more importantly, what that teaches us about God. Verse number two, we just read it. The earth was out form and void. Darkness was on the face of the earth. Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the earth. And God said, let there be light. And imagine that. God spoke it. And there was light. So God said, let there be light, and there was light. So the first thing God did, God spoke light into existence. What does this start to teach us about God? First of all, we start to see that God is a God of order. God is a God of plans and patterns. And we can look at God's plans and patterns. That's why the Bible says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's one of the most important attributes of the whole word of God. Because the word of God written thousands of years ago, here we are living in a modern society, what does this old ancient book have anything to do about our life? It teaches us about God. And God does not change. And even though the characters of the Bible and the, and the culture of the Bible may have been the characters and cultures of thousands of years ago, it shows us who God is and it still applies today. Because God doesn't change. So we understand that God lays at the foundation of the earth. But notice this, what's interesting. The Bible says, God said, let there be light. But we'll find later on in, verse, in, in, in day four that he created the sun, moon, and stars. These are our natural definitions of what we 
think light to be. We see sun, that illuminates the day. So when we see light, we think of these natural beings. But notice, God did these on day four, but on day one, God said, let there be light. What light? What light did he speak into existence? Well, the Bible says in John that God is the light of the world. So the first thing God did and the first thing he does in your life is God steps into your life. God can't create, God can't start creating things in your life until he first steps into your life. So the first thing that has to happen in your life is God's got to get in your life. You can't have the blessing of God without having God in you and God living with you. And that doesn't happen in church. Thank you, Jesus. I know I'm teaching, but give me a minute here. Church is not the way we get God in our life. Church is a part of our relationship with God, but church is not where we get God because church is not a building. We get in God to be in his church. It's not in lesson, but I got to say it. We get in God to be in his church. We don't get in God to go to a building. We get in God because we want to be in his church. Day two, we find this. And God saw the light and there was good. God divided the light from the darkness. So God called the light day, the darkness night. So the evening and the morning of the first day. What do we find? First of all, we find that God is the God of light. Second thing we find in all of this in day two, as God separated atmosphere and water is, that God is a God of separation. God is the God of separation. We find that principle throughout. And notice this as we get deeper into unlocking the Bible, you'll discover that the principles that we lay out here about who God is, God is light, God is separation. We'll find these things play out through all of Scripture. Day three, we find that God continues to bring forth separation. So why is God a God of light? We see because God spoke light. But we find that God is a God of separation because day two, you go read it, God separates atmosphere and water. Day three, as you read through the narrative there, God separates sea and land. Day four, we see the fulfillment of day one, and that is God creates the sun moon and stars and separates the seasons. So again, we begin to see God begin to lay out principles of who he is and how he operates. And then we find something that's awesome about God in all this is we find that God is a God of blessing. Hallelujah. I am, I am, I am uh, speaking to believers, aren't I, today, that God is a God of blessing. How do we know that? Because in the beginning of the first four days, it speaks of the fact that God created. But watch what God does in day five. God blesses the water creatures and the birds. Watch what it says. Verse number 21. Chapter 1 of Genesis, verse 21. So God created sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply. To live with God is to live a blessed life. I live a blessed life. That doesn't mean everything in my life is perfect. And I will say to you, that doesn't mean that the word bless has slashes through the S's that make dollar sign. But as a believer, I believe I live a blessed life because I live and breathe and have a relationship with a God of blessing. Not only do we find that God blesses his creation, but we find a little later on in verse 24 through 31 that when God created man, God Blessed man. So we find, again, God is a God of light. God is a God of revelation, light. He illuminates the dark places in our lives. Not only that, but God is a God of separation. And not only that, but God is a God of separation, of God is a God of blessing. And as we go further, we find that God is a God of perfection. 
He is perfect. We are not, but he is. But when I'm in him, I am perfect. Can I say this? And it's not a part of the lesson, but I just want to say it. Do you know today I stand here and I am perfect? I've never committed a sin and I'm perfect in all my ways. You say, boy, that's an arrogant statement. From a natural standpoint, it is absolutely an arrogant statement. And in my natural man, that's not a true statement. But I'm not walking in my natural man. I am walking in the fact that I'm a child of God and I have the perfect God in me. And therefore, because he's in me and his blood is in my life, I am perfect. We'll get into that a little farther. That was just a little nugget up to some things that we're going. So we understand that we, creation teaches us about that. And we also find that in creation, we're introduced to some of these supernatural beings that are termed angels. And, and we don't have it the, the, for it this lesson, but we find that uh, the angels uh, that were in heaven uh, before creation, there was a war in heaven. And we're introduced to the character in the beginning of Genesis that is a major part of this war, and that is the angel by the name of Lucifer. Or as others term, is, is the devil or Satan, whatever the term uh, that you would like to use today. And the Bible uses multiple terms, but it is all referring back to the same one. We're, we're introduced to this, and, and, and Satan plays a huge huge uh, character in the Bible because Satan really has at his purpose to try to defeat God's plan for man to have a relationship with God. And so we find this begin to play out as we get further into the story because we find that, number one, man was created in the image of God. How do we know that? Genesis one twenty seven says that. That man was created in the image of God. Of God, and notice this, and 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 think about it this way: Man was created by God for God. Let me go back and say that again, and say it slowly, so you hear what I'm saying. Man was created by God for God. Well, that's a that's an awesome thing for you and I to sit here today. And to think about that. Whether or not you believe that or not, you'll have to decide that on your own. But the fact of the matter is, is that man was created by God for God. And because of that, we were created in his image. On top of that, man was delegated authority and responsibility to rule the earth with God. We find that in Psalms 8. We find that in Psalms 115. And I'm skipping through a lot of scriptures uh, today because I want to get, for time's sake, into some really meaty stuff here that is uh, pertaining to where we are today. The other thing we find is, is that God created a help meet for man. Help, help meet for man, and we find that in Genesis 2 when God created woman, who we know now is Eve. And so we find the creation and the story begin to evolve with Adam and Eve. But also with this is we find that during this creation narrative that begins to unfold, we begin to see a major attribute of God, and that is God is love. God is love. God does, it's not, notice This is something you have to understand. There's some things you say and we kind of process it, but we have to stop and think about what's being said. It doesn't say God loves. It says God is love. We love as humans, but I'm not love. I love, but I'm not love. But God is not simply a God who loves, but the Bible says that God is love. Love. You say, where does it say that? John, 1 John 4, 8. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So we begin to see these things begin to play out. And we see all of this as we see God's plan was to bring into existence a group of people who would willingly choose to love and serve him. Because if you are, by definition, 
love. And that's who you are. And you say, God is love. You can't separate love and God. Ultimately, we know that love is a choice. You've got to choose to love. It would not do good today if I said to you, walked up to you and told you, tell me you love me. I don't want to. You better tell me you love me. I don't want to. Tell me now or I'll send your behind out into the furnace for eternity. Okay, I love you. Boy, that felt great. Doesn't make sense. Come on, we all we all understand as human beings, we know what it's like to get a card. And I we get cards, I get cards, I give cards. Although it's getting less and less people are buying cards. But to get a greeting card and the card expresses your true feelings, but let's be honest, it's completely different if you or someone you love sits down and writes their own words. Because really, even though it's a card, someone else gave those words. But when it's your words, you know it's coming. It's beautiful as a, as a parent when your child, one of, one, of the, one of the most rewarding things as a parent, and all of you parents can remember back to these times, even if your children now are older, and you have grandchildren and even great-grandchildren. I believe you could go back to the beginning of your child, especially that first child, that first time when unprovoked, un, uh, with, with, no, with, no, with no real uh, unction, just on their own, they just look at you and they say, Dad, Mom, I love you. Boy, as a parent, that feels amazing. To have, your, to have your child look at you and say, I love you. Why? Because you know they made a choice to do that. So God ultimately in his creation of man is creating us with the ability to choose. You today have a right to choose to love God or not. You weren't forced to be here today. You came out of here because you chose to get up this morning, to get dressed, to make time to get here today. That was a choice. No one showed up at you today with a gun by your bedside and said, get up out of bed and get to church by 945. That might work, actually. We can get it on time. But it didn't work that way. Why? Because you've got a choice. And let's be honest. Let's say we have a church of 5,000 today, but every one of you came because you were forced to do that. Trust me, I, I've been in, I've preached in prison ministries. And yeah, those, the men in prison are hungry men that desire God. But let's be honest, they don't really have anywhere else to go. Am I right, Brother Nielsen? You've been there. And let's be honest, here's the problem. Everybody finds Jesus in prison. Man, they are fine. They, the most spiritual people walking on the face of the earth are incarcerated today. They read the Bible more than you do. They read the Bible more than I do. But when they get out, and now they have a choice, very rarely, Brother Nielsen's been here, other of you are here that have done prison ministry. Very rarely you see men make the transition when they find God incarcerated, that they find God when they get out. Why? Because they have a choice. They have a choice. You have a choice today. So we finally begin to see all this play out, and then we find something that takes place that really pertains to us today. We find this in Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 1, and that is this. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God hath made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said... You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, You shall not eat, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. There are two things that we begin to see. Not only are we learning about God, but we're also learning about how Satan works. And he always paints a better picture than there really is. 
You've heard this illustration used before, but years ago, we had a dog. When I was growing up, we had a dog, and we had a big backyard, and we would let the dog, it was a, it, 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 we would let the dog go out and, um, and, 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 and run around the yard, and we uh, had one of those, uh, one of those cables that you could hook up to the dog and, um, and, and, and let the dog run up and down on the cable. And it was amazing. The best patch of grass in the entire yard, two acres of grass, there was this beautiful green, lush patch of grass where she ran up and down. You know why? Because while she was out there, she was fertilizing it. So it looked green. But it had a lot of stuff out there that made it look that way. The devil will show you the beautiful lushness, but there's also another side to the story. We begin to see this because he paints a beautiful picture. God, you do all this. God doesn't care. Oh, I tell you what, when someone comes to you and tells you, well, God doesn't really care about this and God doesn't really care about that and God doesn't really care how you're... Ooh, you better be careful. You better be careful because that's a slippery, slippery, slippery slope to go down. So we find this. Notice, verse 1, Satan planted the first question of doubt about God's word to the women. To the woman, first thing Satan's always going to try to get you to do is question the word of God. I don't care if this is your first time here. Like we have some that are just coming for the first time or we have some of you that have been around for 30 years. You know good and well, even after 30 years, the devil still tries to get you to question things about the word of God. Oh, is this necessary? Do we really got to, is that really? Ooh, watch out. So notice this. We find that the, he begins to plant doubt about the word of God. The second thing we find is he begins to plan a lie and contradiction about the truth of God's word. And notice this. What did he get her to do? He gets her to question the nature and the character of God. How many of you in here have had that thought? Don't don't have to raise your hand because we know everybody in here has had this thought. Well, if God's so good and God's so loved, why is there so much hell in the world? Why am I going through so much hell? That's the thing, right? Everyone asks that. Why does bad things happen to good people? And if God's so loving, why is there people starving? Why is there? We have this question. Where do you think the origin of those questions come from? Those origins of those questions come from the adversary because he wants us to question the very nature of God. And notice this. The final thing he did was... He offered her to be like God. And they could define good and evil themselves. You don't need God today to tell you what's good and evil. Let society, let nature tell you. Let let your intuition, let that internal guiding spirit inside of you tell you what good and evil is. Well, that's crazy because let's be honest, we can't determine what's good and evil. And I'm not saying this as a political statement. I'm using it in the culture. Because one side of the aisle says this is good and this is evil. The other side of the aisle says this is good and this is evil. And depending where you are, if you're red or blue, that's who you determine what's good or evil. That doesn't make sense. Man, how often nowadays can anybody agree on anything? If you don't believe me, go on Facebook. Very rarely on Facebook does anyone ever say, I agree. Everybody has an opinion. Everybody's right. So if the, the, the adversary wants you to be your own defining God, to determine in your own world what's good or wrong, what's right. Well, I, here's the thing, right? I've had, this, I've had people tell me this. Well, I, I, I just don't believe that's necessarily bad. I don't really think that's wrong. Well, you know what? This is going to sound very harsh, and I don't mean it this way. I don't really care if you think it's wrong. I care what he thinks. If I want your opinion, I'm going to put you on a cross, and you're going to die for me. But until you do that, it doesn't matter to me. It matters to him. 
And you know what? There's some things that he says to me that are wrong. You probably won't agree with, but I'm not pleasing you. I'm pleasing him. And you don't save me. He saves me. So we find it in this whole thing that begins to happen in the story. And I'm starting to run out of time, so you go back and read it. Again, this is stuff that you need to go back and read. We're getting this out of Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3. We find that in this, there's this word that's finally introduced into humanity, and that is the word sin. Instead of obeying God, the woman reasoned with herself and chose to eat the fruit. And Adam chose to obey his wife instead of God. And as a result of this disobedience, sin entered in to humanity. Sin entered in to humanity. What is sin? Let's just take a quick definition of what is sin. And there's multiple definitions that are, but really... One definition is this. Sin is falling short of God's glory. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fell short of the glory of God. Creation gives gives glory to God when they walk in God's original design for them. But when we step out of God's intended will for us, we fall short of His glory. Sin occurs when we decide to do things our way rather than God's way. Notice this. The definition of sin is when we choose to do things our way rather than God's way. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, in the easy-to-read version, or the ESV, actually. What's the ESV? Easy, uh, someone help me. What's ESV? Not easy to read. Angel Standard Version. There you go. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is disobedience to God. So sin is falling short of his glory. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is disobedience to God. What are the consequences of sin? We talk about sin. What are the consequences of sin? Why is it, what is it a big deal to me that sin, the biggest thing that sin does is this sin breaks our communion with God sin separates us from God Isaiah 59 verse 2 says but your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear sin separates you from God sin also introduces guilt Fear and shame. What is the difference between guilt and shame? Very simply. Guilt is the feeling that says, I made a mistake. Shame says, I am a mistake. And guilt and shame are a product of sin. Again, guilt says, I made a mistake. Shame says, I am a mistake. In fact, one of the titles that we find that the Bible refers to Satan is, is it refers to him as the Accuser. He accuses. Because here's the thing with Satan. He's brilliant at this, right? He'll tell you to do something. It's like a, kids do this all the time. I watch my kids do it. My oldest is a master at this. She's brilliant. She wants something. She won't ask for it. But she knows. She'll ask the little one. He's five. He doesn't know anything. He still hadn't figured out the game. She's almost 11. She figured it out. You know what she does? She'll ask the little one. His name is Noah. Noah. Go ask mom. If we can have something to drink. And Noah doesn't know any better. He's wondering, Mom, can we have something to drink? Like, no, we just fed you. We're not having a drink. Goes back. Don't ask. And Hope's like, see, 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 we're not supposed to have. I'm like, you are a hypocrite. (laughs) He asked that because you told him. You set him up. That is the, that's the devil right there. I'm not saying my daughter's the devil. Back it down. But 
that's how he operates, right? He'll get you to do something. The moment you do it, wham! Right? Come on, don't, don't, you know, God just doesn't want you to have fun. Why don't you just have a little fun? It's not going to hurt anybody. How about this one? Nobody's going to know. Right? You're by yourself. Nobody's going to know. Who's it going to hurt? And you're like, okay, this is going to be great. I'll just have fun. And the moment you do it, what happens? Wham! You are terrible. God doesn't love you. You're a failure. Everybody in church is now going to know you're a hypocrite. Wait a minute. You just told me this was going to be great. And you know what's so crazy about all this? We keep falling for the same thing. We think we're so smart. We're really not that brilliant because we do the same thing over and over again. It doesn't matter if you live for God for five minutes or for 50 years. You do the same thing over and over again. We still fall in the same trap. Oh, no one knows. No one's watching. I'm going to do it. Next thing you know, wham! You are, he makes you feel like you're the lowest. Why? Because he already played his hand in Genesis. He did the same thing to Eve. Oh, go ahead and do it. God can't take you. The reason God doesn't want you to do it, because God, he wants to keep you from having fun. Next thing you know, here she goes, does it. The whole narrative changes. Why? Because sin leads to death. Romans 6 says, the wages of sin is death. death. Death, not only is it, we're talking physical, but more importantly, we're talking about a spiritual death. Because spiritual death equals separation from God. Sin separates us from God and will eventually lead to death. But here we go, we find, ready? We find two ways of dealing with sin. And you today, you have two paths to deal with your sin. There is nobody in here, in fact, the Bible says, nobody in here can claim I don't have sin. In fact, the Bible says, if you claim you have sin, you're a liar. The truth's not in you. So just by confessing you have no sin, you just sinned. So we all have sin. From here to back there. Me and you, all of us have sin. The biggest uh, uh, myth I find that people have about coming to God is when you come to God, you suddenly are perfect. Or you should be perfect. Come on, how many of you people have heard, well, you're a Christian, how could you do that? Well, let's be honest. If you're a jerk before you come to God, you still may be a jerk after you come to God. You just may be a jerk with the Holy Ghost. Because you know what? It doesn't make you perfect. And you still have sin. And you're still going to have to deal with sin. So what is the two different ways we find with sin? Well, we find a couple ways we deal with sin. First thing we do, we man's way of dealing with sin, God's way of dealing with sin, two different. Let's look at man's way of dealing with sin. Man does several things. First of all, man blames others. Because we find when God approached Adam about his sin, what did Adam say? It wasn't me. It was the woman. It was the woman you gave me. Shame's the, get the woman, not me. Or how about this terminology? We say, it's the devil made me do it. It was a prominent man. I've used this before and I'll use it again. It was a prominent preacher, very well-known preacher that what had a, a long extramarital affair, fell into sin, got caught. He wrote a letter to his congregation, and in the letter he said, the devil got me. It was him. He had me. I was like, no, the devil didn't get you. You had a problem that you didn't address. It wasn't the devil that made you do it. The devil didn't make you. There's no kids in here. The devil didn't force him to lay down in the bed with that woman. The devil did, you are the only, you are, and you alone are the only one that can take, it, take the fall for what you've done. In fact, we find later on when David was, was, was accused of sin and pointed out by the prophet, he made the statement. He said, to God, against thee and thee only have I done this sin. Man, we want to deflect. 
My goodness, I go back to my kids. You can't pin anybody down for anything. If you've got multiples, you know what I'm talking about. Why'd you do this? Well, because they... My daughter, God bless her, my middle daughter, she... Something came over her in the night in the bathroom and they got the Vaseline out. Yes, Vaseline. And they wanted to make themselves appear as if they were sweating because they looked shiny. So she went on to take Vaseline, greasy Vaseline, and put it all over her body. And then went all over the house, spreading the love on every piece of furniture and everywhere she went. And when we decided, we're like, what is this stuff? What is all over? And we're like, we see this glowing shine coming off. What is on you? It's Vaseline. Why in God's name would you put Vaseline? And her words were, Noah told me to do it. Are you? He's five. I wish I could tell I was a better parent and I was calm. Oh, it's okay, honey. I'm like, he's five. <laughs> Don't listen to him. He's five. The devil... There's no blame, but man blames. The other thing man likes to do, we find in the story is, man likes to hide. Because why? We find that after sin, Adam tried to hide from God's presence. So we find that man blames, man hides, because guess what? When we do things that are wrong, what is the one thing we want to do? We want to stay away. We don't want to go. We feel guilty. We feel ashamed. We don't want to go into the presence of God. We don't want to go worship with our brothers and sisters. We want to pull away. We want to hide. The third thing that man does is man tries to cover up. Man tries to cover up their sin. In fact, the Bible says that Adam and Eve made fig leaves. Have you ever seen a fig leaf or touched a fig leaf? Exactly. Ouch. Can you imagine a garment made of fig leaves? But they try to cover up. So three things man tries to do with sin. Man tries to blame. Man tries to hide. Man tries to cover up. But how does God deal with sin? How does God deal with sin? God deals with sin three ways. God wants you to take responsibility for your sin. We just read it, but we just spoke it. We'll read it again. Psalms 51 verse 3. David said, For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. The first thing we all have to do in God's way is we have to acknowledge, I have sin. You've got to acknowledge that today. Every person in here has to acknowledge, I have sin. The second thing you need to do is confess where you're at. I have sin and I need a Savior. The third thing is we've got to let God's mercy cover us. Because the Bible says that God created coats of skin. And I don't have time to go into all this today. If I was teaching a Bible study to you one-on-one, I'd go into this. But today I don't have time to do this. But God created skins. God shed the blood of an innocent animal. We begin to see the principle of what God was going to do on the cross. God shed the blood of an innocent animal. He created coats of skin to cover their nakedness and clothe them in innocence. He took something that had no sin and covered that which had sin. And that is how God deals with sin then, today, and tomorrow. Because God's desire is to take your faults and cover it with his innocence. And it may not naturally be putting on it, but the Bible talks about his blood and Calvary through baptism becomes that way that we are covered with his innocence. Just like God dealt with covering the innocence of Adam and Eve in the later. Through all this, we find that God is merciful. And salvation, salvation comes only by doing God's way. 
So let's talk a bit of, real quick about judgment. Because of sin, the, there's a judgment that t- begins to take place. But in this, we find that God is just. We find that God is just in the judgment of the serpent, the judgment of the woman, judgment on the ground. God is just. God, God is just. But in all of this as well, we begin to see the foundation for the hope of a future Savior. Because in the beginning, the Bible says God knows the end from the beginning. And God knew that you and I today would be here. We're not natural fig leaves today. We're not naturally living in a garden. We're not naturally covering ourselves up. But some of us today, we are trying to cover ourselves up. We're covering ourselves up through whatever is success. We've covered ourselves up through family, through this, through that, through the way we appear to each other, through image. We do all these things to cover up the fact of the way we feel inside. But God looked out into eternity and saw you and I today. And the fact he came to this earth, robed in flesh, died on a cross, shed his blood, so that you and I could be then robed in his innocence. That's why I said at the very beginning that is this, that I can stand here today and say, I'm innocent. I'm sin free. You said, well, that's a little... That's a little bold for you to say that, preacher. That's a little arrogant. It is arrogant from a natural perspective. But I don't stand here today in my innocence. I stand here today in his innocence. I don't stand here today in my perfection. I stand here today in God's perfection. The Bible says there's no good, none, not one. What does this teach us? It teaches us this. There's nothing you can do to be good enough to earn God. And the term goes this, you don't get good to come to God, you get God to get good. So let's look at a recap here of the 11 attributes that we've learned today about God. 11 things that the first three, the four chapters of Genesis begins to teach us about God and some of the attributes and characteristics of God that are then going to be carried out not only through the rest of what we're talking about unlocking the Bible, but it's carried about throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Little quiz again. How many books in the Old Testament? 39. How many in the New? 27. What's a good way to remember that? Old is 3. Testament is 9. 39. New is 3. Testament is 9. 9 times 3 is 27. And we get a total of 66. So from Genesis to Revelation, we find these attributes begin to play out. And these are the attributes. God is a spirit. God is infinite. God is the creator. God is a God of order. God is a God of separation. God is a God of blessing. God is the God of perfection. God is holy. God is love. God is merciful. And God is just. Can I get one amen? amen. So we understand and begin to see what is the importance of studying this. And can I say this here? At the end of this, as a disclaimer to all of you here that have gone through or know more knowledge, it's not your first time through the Bible. Let me say this. One of the things that you're going to notice here as we get into this, and we have a little tendency to do um, as apostolics is, we're a little quick on the trigger. We want to go ahead and just pull out our 238s. we got to be a little slower because there's some people that need a more foundation of how we even got to where we get to. Sometimes we try to, it's like trying to birth a baby that's not ready to be birthed. There's got to be a process that a mother goes through for that baby to be birthed properly. And so you'll find as we go through this, like, when are we going to talk about baptism? We're going to talk about filling the Holy Ghost. We're going to get there, but what's the purpose of talking about all that if we don't even know what the Bible is and what's the purpose of the Word? I mean, you've had this experience. I've literally sat down with educated, smart people. I sat down, this was seven years ago, I sat down with a lady that owned a business. She was smart. She had a successful business. And I was talking to her, and I said to her, uh, the book of Acts says, and she very sweetly, she was a super sweet lady. It was very, very kindly. She looked at me very carefully. She said, um, what's an Acts? I said, well, it's a book in the Bible, in the New Testament. And she said, what's the New Testament? And I'm like, whoa, we got to back it up quick here. 
too far ahead of the course. Now, you may come in contact with people that already know this stuff. You may come in contact with people that have knowledge of the Word of God. But we have a lot of people out there in our world today that don't know anything about the Bible. And what they've heard is completely wrong. How many people you come across that they talk about the Bible and the knowledge they have, you're like, where did you get that? How did you come up with that? So we're finding there in the formation of how we're doing our lessons and as we're going forward step by step in all of this is that there is a pattern and a principle uh, by which uh, we want to establish. In fact, some of you know this name, um, Morel Cornwell is uh, a name that some of you would know. And if you don't know this name, uh, Morel Cornwell, he is a pastor in Wichita, Kansas. He has a church of, uh, it's, it's 12, 13, 1400, the number's irrelevant. However, the whole church is based off um, Bible studies. In fact, there's one man in particular, one man in particular there that he is a full-time member of their church staff. And I believe I'm correct on this, and, and, and don't quote me, but I'm pretty sure it's accurate. I believe he teaches over 500 Bible studies a year. 500 Bible studies a year. But Brother Cornwell, so this is not a novice, Brother Cornwell believes that you cannot teach someone about what the Bible says until you first teach them what the Bible is. And so that's why we're taking this tack. In the past, we've done some stuff with uh, Into Its Marvelous Light that's been a little more straightforward, but this is, this is sort of a longer approach, a more established approach that we're doing. So I know some of you have asked that. Some of you have thought that uh, sort of what we're doing uh, in, in all of this. So praise God. Amen. <laughs>